If you would, turn in your Bibles to Luke chapter 1. Hey, I'm Cameron. I'm the lead pastor here at Christ Community Church. Um, they're excited to leave. I, I don't know how to take that. Uh, some of you were hoping I was gone until December 25th. Uh, somebody said they thought that I was going to be gone for the whole month, but it didn't work out that way. I'm back. Uh, so uh, we're beginning our series in Advent looking at Luke chapters 1 and 2. And some of you may be kind of thinking, Wait a minute, why isn't December 25th the winter solstice? Isn't this just a bunch of pagan nonsense? Aren't we just goofing off? And the answer is not entirely. Um, and so uh, um, December 25th actually is more associated with something that we saw in the book of Daniel, which was the reinstitution of worship in, uh, in the temple after it had been destroyed once. And so there really is more connection there than with the winter solstice. So you can rest easy on that. And I think it's actually a good idea as a church to make sure that there's always a rhythm and a place where we return to the first advent of Christ, the coming of Christ, and his death and resurrection, which we'll see again at Easter. That is a very important thing for us to always come back to, and sometimes I think we can drift from it. And so I think that's the importance of having a time where we key in and focus on this thing called Advent. And Advent just means coming. And so uh, we are, we'll look at the incarnation or the first coming of Christ through Luke's lens. Now, what's interesting about the Gospel of Luke is uh, he has some specific emphases that are different than the other Gospels. He very much focuses on the individual. You'll notice that he talks about a lot of specific people. We'll see this morning uh, that he's going to talk about Zechariah and Elizabeth uh, and, and how these individuals are a key part of the gospel story. Now, we, we oftentimes, because we're, we're, we're a little afraid of that sometimes, because our culture is so radically individualistic that we, we, don't, we're, we want to be careful so, so as not to exalt ourselves too much. And that's a good balance. But we also have to be reminded that Jesus actually does incarnate and the Spirit infiltrate the lives of individuals, such as you and I. It's not just giant groups of people. And that also tells us that God actually cares specifically for the things that are going on in our lives. And we're going to see that with Zechariah and Elizabeth because she's barren. And God's going to answer a prayer and, and, and do so in a way that is miraculous and profound. And in so doing, he's going to be saying specifically to Elizabeth, I love you. And he does that with each of us in various ways. So I, I want to make sure that we, we keep an eye on that because that's going to be very important to us as we work through Luke 1 and 2 is that it's really, he's focusing on individuals. And in particular, he likes to focus on individuals at the margin. He places women very high especially in a culture that placed them very low. He places children very high in a culture that placed them very low. He placed those who were at the margin, such as the shepherds, which we'll see on Christmas Day, who were not the kind of people that everybody liked to hang out with. They smelled bad and they were probably rough. They may have told dirty jokes. I don't know. I, I've never met a shepherd, but uh, chances are they, they were kind of a rough and tumble crowd. They lived outside a lot. Uh, they, they were kind of kept to themselves, and yet he chooses to show them something first that causes them to rejoice and go back and share the gospel. And so, again and again, what we're going to see is that Luke has a particular emphasis on the individuals at the margins. He also loves to talk about angels, and we're going to see angels quite a bit through chapters 1 and 2. And, uh, and so, he, he's going to be highlighting some things that are very important. He's also big, which is interesting because he's a Gentile, and he was a physician. He really emphasizes the Hebrew concept of shalom, 
Shalom is not just peace. I think that peace sometimes is, is, is too narrow uh, a, a description. It, it actually, shalom is the making of all things new, the reconciling of every single solitary thing that has been divided. And Luke loves this concept. As a Gentile, he, he just grabs onto it, and you're going to hear it quite a bit throughout. And so those are the specific emphases for this gospel. And so... Um, uh, that is different than the others. So keep those things in mind. Uh, and as we approach this gospel, I, I want to ask you a question. What, what helps you to have certainty in the things that you've been taught? What, what, uh, and we, we, week after week, we, we do this, we exposit God's word, you've done Bible studies, some of you have years and years and years of learning what is it that actually gives you certainty in the thing that you have learned? Well, for most people, it is the incarnation of that knowledge, the actual flesh and blood outworking of that knowledge, that it's not just words on a page, that it's not just something that is abstract, but it actually has a tangibility to it that it actually comes to life, which is such a critical concept for us as the church because so much of what we can be guilty of, especially as a Presbyterian church and especially as Reformed folk, is that we can place head knowledge way up here. And the experiential, we can, we can push way out to the margins where Luke is bringing it the other way around is that the experience and the truth of the gospel, this is why he looks at it in the lives of individuals, because that is in fact where it is so beautifully incarnated, is it's in each of our lives, which is why it is so important that we get to know each other, to be able to hear each other's stories, to see how the gospel is at work in so many different places. It's one of the great joys that I have as a pastor, for those of you who have had the opportunity to get to know and you've told me the truth of your life. It has been a real joy to see how God is at work. And that's what helps me keep going. Because if all I was doing was lecturing about some dead letter, I can assure you, I can spend my time doing a lot of other things. And would. And would not do this. So it becomes a critical that we have the eyes to see and the ears to hear, to be able to hear each other's stories about how God is actually living out his promises. And that's why it becomes so important for us to have tangible examples of that, such as Jackson Lucas joining this morning, such as uh, any number of things that we could bring up where God has been very good in this place, even in the hard things. And so we need to be a people who tell the story. If you've noticed, that's kind of been a theme this morning. Go tell it on the mountain. Tell me the story of Jesus. Both of the scriptures that we've read were about telling. Everything has been pointing to this sharing of the gospel. And for those of you who have been here, what is the church's one job? Make disciples who make disciples, or we could shorten that, tell the story. Because telling the story helps make disciples, right? The, the compelling story and how it affects you and how it has changed you. Let people see your life. In fact, one of the hardest truths that I learned when I was a physical therapist for 15 years and was a chaplain to rescue mission going to seminary, um, I always felt like I was under this giant spotlight, right? And I, and I was a manager, and so I had to make some hard decisions sometimes, and I had to, be, uh, I had to deal with some things. I made some mistakes. I know that's hard for you to believe. We've documented a few of the last few weeks. I, I heard Matthew O'Sullivan pointed one of mine out. Yes, I blew the election. Uh, <laughs> 
<laughs> so don't, don't ask me for lottery numbers. Anyway, you shouldn't do that anyway. Um, and so, so there were times when I felt like I had to be perfect. And you know how hard it is to be perfect? And yet what's so beautiful is oftentimes when I would mess up or have some sort of interaction with someone that I was so ashamed of, it provided one of the best gospel opportunities of all to be able to go and say, forgive me, I was wrong. In fact, as parents, you know this is true. One of the most beautiful moments you have with your kids is actually when you're able to turn to them and them see you in humility say, I was wrong. I did not get that right. And so as we tell the story, we need to be willing to tell the whole story. Because sometimes we sanitize it so much that it makes it hard for people to go, well, then what do you need Jesus for if you're so great? So tell the whole story. Let people see the whole of your life. Let people see it incarnated and matter. Let them see you in the dark as well as in the light. Within reason on that one, by the way. But don't hide any of it because God uses it all and he redeems it all. Because of his promises, we don't have to be perfect. We get to be perfect in Christ alone before the throne. Now, Luke starts off in, his, in the preface, which is verses one through four. Let's turn to the text. If you would give your attention to the reading of God's word. Listen to what he says. He says, in as much as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word have delivered them to us, it seemed good to me also, having followed all things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, that you may have certainty concerning the things that you have been taught. Now, straight away, we have that, that Luke is just, he's writing this story for a friend. Now, think about that. This is, in fact, Luke uh, actually uh, probably wrote more of the words of the New Testament than others because he's responsible also for the book of Acts as well. And so he is taking the time to tell one friend this incredible story of Jesus. He is taking the time to compose something deep and rich and put it together just for a friend. And you may say, well, did he not know that the Holy Spirit was going to use it? It doesn't seem like it. It doesn't seem like he was aware of that was the point of writing it down. He just wanted one friend to know for sure that Jesus loves him. What an amazing thing. And would that we would have that kind of concern for our friends and family. That we would want to make certain that they knew the love of Christ through, the, for, through God their Father, in the coming of Christ. We don't know exactly who Theophilus is. It seems to be someone that he esteems. He calls him most excellent. And he's not suggesting that the other accounts are not worthy. It's just he's a physician. He's followed these things closely. And there's some details that he wants to make sure that Theophilus hears that aren't in the other things. And those details are the gospel incarnating in the lives of individuals. So he is going to take the time to sit down and write this out. Listen to what uh, theologian J.C. Ryle says about this as we enter into this book. He says, let us bless God daily that we are not left dependent on man's traditions and need not be led astray by ministers' mistakes. We 
have written a volume which is able to make us wise unto salvation through faith which is in Christ Jesus, which is 2 Timothy 3.15. Let us begin St. Luke's gospel with an earnest desire to know more ourselves of the truth as it is in Jesus and with hearty determination to do what in us lies to spread the knowledge of that truth throughout the world. Reason that we do what we do in Advent is so that you will know the story so that you can share it with others. If you keep your light under a bushel, it is no light at all. If you are unwilling to share the gospel because you're afraid, then maybe you don't believe what you think you believe. And so it becomes very important that we so care for others that what we want to do is share the story as it is writ large in Scripture and as it is writ large in our hearts and our lives. So, is your experience of the gospel of Jesus Christ worth sharing with others? Now, there's a trap here. The way that question is written, I don't know who wrote that, but it seems to imply that there are worthy stories and there are unworthy stories. And it was written intentionally that way because I wrote it. And so that you would have to think and realize that no, every experience of the gospel is worth sharing. You've heard me talk about this before. My wife has known Jesus all of her days. No church in America is going to ever invite her, not just because she's a woman. St. Luke loves women too. Not just because she's a woman, but because she did not have a radical transformational experience. She's just always known Jesus loved her. And if you ask her, she's just going to say, yeah, Jesus has always loved me, and I, I love that. And that's kind of her testimony. Nobody wants to hear that. Give me something exciting. I need some, you know, some drugs and prostitutes and craziness and murder and blood and guts. Well, you get that too. That's why I'm here. And so, uh, so I'm the other side of that, which is all that stuff too. But that's not what's important because that ends up becoming a focus. On, this is where the, it goes dark. It becomes too much a focus on the individual and not enough on Christ. And so we should, we should value every story and you should not wish for some sort of darkness so that your story will be more salient. No, it's Christ that makes the story salient. Trust me, and I've said this before, and I've been confronted about it, and so, I, I, so save your reconfrontation. I, I still hang with, I wouldn't change my story. But, but, given the pain that I've been through, I look at Susan's story and I say, I would, I would like to at least know for a moment what it's like to be uninhibited and knowing that God loves me without all of the baggage. And one day I'm going to know, by the way, when glorification at the second coming of Christ or the last advent. But so often we don't tell our stories because we don't think it has enough to it. No, it's got plenty. It's got Jesus. And if Jesus has placed his love upon you, you should share that. And you should look into more places. And part of our problem is we don't take the time, as we ought to do every Lord's Day Sabbath, to remember how God has been good. We, we take too much for granted. Your story is being written. Your story is unfolding in Christ. And it's beautiful. And there's a lot going on that you're missing because you're so task-oriented or you're so head in the clouds or you're so looking somewhere else. You, know, you don't pause long enough to remember, to ask, to look, to investigate. That will help you to have more of a story worth telling in Christ. If you would turn back to the text, let's look at verses five through 10. This is gonna be the story of Zechariah and Elizabeth who are righteous and barren. 
In the days of Herod, the king of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah of the division of Abijah, and he had a wife from the daughters of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. And they were both righteous before God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and statutes of the Lord. But they had no child, because Elizabeth was barren, and both were advanced in years. Now while he was serving as priest before God when his division was on duty, according to the custom of the priesthood, he was chosen by lot to enter the temple of the Lord and burn incense. And the whole multitude of the people were praying outside at the hour of incense. Now, Zechariah, whose name means the Lord has remembered, he is a priest, and he's one of the group of priests that's been set up in the Old Testament. They would take turns serving in the temple, and each uh, day it would take about 56, 56 different priests to actually fulfill the functions, so they would serve about two weeks out of the year in these groups, and so they would rotate. Burning incense was actually something that you may never get to do in your priestly lifetime. It was actually a very special thing, and uh, it wasn't guaranteed that you would do it. So what we're seeing here is the sovereignty of God, the hand of God already moving. Remember, in Proverbs, it talks about man casts the lot, but the Lord determines its outcome. And here, the Lord has determined that Zechariah would be the one who would stand in the Holy of Holies to burn incense. And notice also, too, something that's very important to us that is in this text is that no matter how righteous you are, you will suffer. And they are very much in the lineage of Abram and Sarai as they are longing for a child, and they are up in years. And yet, she is barren. And so often in their culture, barrenness was seen as God's judgment. Now, that comes from the book of Leviticus, but it's not always guaranteed to be judgment. It is a specific judgment for an issue. But it doesn't always mean that, but you try to tell the public that, what's true. Just ends up being clickbait, right? And so, and so, uh, and so she is longing for a child and she's hurting. And they have been good, and yet their goodness does not broker them anything. And he continues to serve in the, in the temple and he's doing what he can, but there is great grief upon their hearts. And you know the weight of this, some of you, that, that the longing to have a child can be a very difficult thing. It's not, it's not always easy. And many of you have struggled with infertility and barrenness, and you know the weight of it. And so you know her heart. You know the, the anguish that's probably going on between them uh, as, they, as they can't fix this. They can't make it work. And so... What we see is that even the righteous suffer, something that we've talked about often here. Listen to what Philip Graham Ryken says about this passage. He says, in this case, Elizabeth was barren for the glory of God. God was not punishing her, but planning a miracle that would get his people ready for salvation and also bring Elizabeth great joy. Part of the Christian perspective on suffering is that even in suffering, there is a way for us to glorify God. The question to ask about suffering is not, what have I done to deserve this? But how can I glorify God through this? Otherwise, suffering is meaningless. If, if, if suffering cannot bring God glory, if your suffering is random, if your suffering is because you can't be perfect, then the game is rigged and it is lost. 
Now, suffering is just a part of our life between the now and the not yet, which is one of the reasons we long for the last advent of Christ, which is one of the reasons that we can say with John from the book of Revelation, come Lord Jesus. There's so much groaning here. And our righteousness doesn't change it, doesn't take it away. And yet God uses all of it all of it in a miraculous way for his glory. Some of you are in the midst of it, and some of you would love for me to give you an answer. Why? Why is this? Where is the glory in this? And for some of you, I can't. And for some of you, it is a matter of time, and it is a matter of the Spirit bringing to fruition or bringing to your knowledge what is going on. And notice, notice that We don't always get told this side of heaven. And yet, we can cling to the promises. And yet, we can know that it is not meaningless in the end. So, how has God used your brokenness for his glory? Now look, we're not all Zechariah's and Elizabeth's, all right? So let's not go too far, right? This is a, a specific thing within redemptive history, but how many times has God shown that he will take and use our brokenness for his glory? Uh, some of you know, uh, for some reason, I've been terribly reflective since my 44th birthday, and I just celebrated a 17th anniversary with my wife yesterday, and yes, that's a miracle. Uh, and, so, and so we were uh, sitting on the back porch last night just reflecting on our 17 years, and it was amazing how much suffering and darkness and brokenness we have passed through in that 17 years. I have a 24-year-old and a 20-year-old. That should tell you something. Uh, that's just part of it. We, we have, we have w- walked through the valley of uh, blighted ovum uh, where we lost a child. And um, one way you can be praying for me, I have been wrestling with whether or not we were right to stop. And I confess to you that I stopped out of, more out of fear than out of what I felt was the leading of the Lord. And, and I know that someday I will answer for that. And yet it will not be eternal. Christ has already dealt with that. And yet between the now and the not yet, it will haunt me. Um, because I did what I did out of fear. And we tried to spin it. You know, we've got two adopted kids. They're older. Bringing new kids into the house is going to be crazy. We'll be like 55 when they're 20. It just makes sense, right? No. No, it didn't make sense. And so we wrestled with that last night on the porch a bit. And there's a lot of good, too, by the way. And I asked Susan this question. I said, Susan, if you could change one thing in our marriage, what would it be? And it wasn't me that she would change. That was good. Uh, that, was, that was a good starter. And it was interesting because she really struggled. She said, I, I really don't know. She said, what would you change? I said, I don't know that I would change any of it because that changes what we're doing right now. That changes the fact that 17 years in, I love you and know you more than I ever did in those early years. I didn't love you near at year 10 what I love you now at year 17. And so to change something would be to change that. Now, it may have also been because we saw the movie Arrival, and so there's a, there's a, the question in the movie Arrival is, if you, if you knew the future and you knew the suffering that would come, would you change so that you wouldn't suffer? 
And so, so that really has been playing heavy upon my heart and mind. And, and so it was an incredible thing for us to struggle to think of anything we'd change, even though we had testified to some very difficult years. Not days, not months, years. For those of you who've been married in a length of time, you know exactly what I'm talking about. And God had used it all. And we even talked about parenting. And what would you change in parenting? And we had a little bit there that we thought we would change, but really that was probably more about us, so we would look better when the story's finished than it had anything to do with how it would change our children. And so, so really, even in that, we said, no, we wouldn't change anything. Even the hard stuff. Because God has used so much of it and continues to use it to display his glory. So I would encourage you to take time I know it's not the funnest thing to do after Thanksgiving to think about your brokenness and how God has used it for his glory, but I I promise you, it will bless you to step back. Because it was so interesting, because we both were were, um, kind of struggling to remember the years. We had to kind of find, you know, these, these peg points. All right, so wait, what was going on that year so we could remember? And it was interesting how everything opened up, things we hadn't thought about in years that we were blessed by taking the time to think about and laugh about and enjoy sitting there uh, together. And so I would encourage you this Lord's Day Sabbath, take some time, you and your family, and just just think about, look at, how has God used brokenness? Look, help your children to see this. This is critical that you teach your children how God works in the midst of brokenness to bring about his glory. If you don't teach them, the world is not going to. And take time to even show them and say to them, hey, I know this was a hard stretch for you, but here's how I saw God use it for his glory. And he is using you as a blessing. Would that our children could hear that. Even those of you who have older children, they need to hear that from you too. They need to, you need to take time to remember. And that's the benefit of Advent to us. If you would turn back to the text, look at verses 11 through 25. God's word says, and there appeared to him, being Zechariah, who had now stepped into the Holy of Holies, an angel of the Lord standing on the right side of the altar of incense. And Zechariah was troubled when he saw him and fell upon his face, and fear fell upon him. But the angel said to him, do not be afraid, Zechariah, for your prayer has been heard, and your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you shall call his name John. And you will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth, for he will be great before the Lord. And he must not drink wine or strong drink, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit even from his mother's womb. And he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God, and he will go before them, before him in the spirit and the power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just to make ready for the Lord, a people prepared. And Zechariah said to the angel, how shall I know this? For I am an old man and my wife is advanced in years. And the angel answered him, I am Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God and I was sent to speak to you and to bring you this good news. And behold, you will be silent and unable to speak until the day that these things take place because you did not believe my words, which will be fulfilled in their time. 
And the people were waiting for Zechariah. And they were wondering at his delay in the temple. And when he came out, he was unable to speak to them. And they realized that he had seen a vision in the temple. And he kept making signs to them and remained mute. And when his time of service was ended, he was, he was sent to his home. After these days, his wife Elizabeth conceived. And for five months, she kept herself hidden, saying, Thus the Lord has done for me in the days when he looked on me to take away my reproach among the people. So we have Zechariah who is chosen by sovereign lot to offer the incense. So he goes into the Holy of Holies. And you got to understand, it would have been a very frightening thing for there to be another individual in the Holy of Holies, right? Because this was the place where the Ark of the Covenant was, that no one was supposed to just wander in here. You could die. So Zechariah is struck fearful, not just because there's another person, but an angel who must be some sort of uh, just overpowering figure. For every time they show up, people kind of get scared. You remember Daniel's response when he was confronted with the angel. And notice the similarity. The angel shows up to let Zechariah know, you and Elizabeth's prayers have been heard on high. I've come to tell you they will be fulfilled. And he tells him that he's going to give birth. She will give birth to a son named John, which means God has been gracious or God has shown favor. And what, what, what he's supposed to do is take what's called a Nazarite vow, which comes from Numbers chapter 6. Now, the word Nazarite just means consecrated or set apart. It just means that he is to be set apart specifically for something for the Lord's, for the Lord's work. Now, not everybody who actually does the Lord's work is set apart in this way, but for, for John, he was. And they didn't want anyone saying that he was filled with any other spirits other than the Holy Spirit. So he would be filled with the Holy Spirit in the womb. What does that tell you about the view of life in the book of, of Luke. This physician, that this child would be filled with the spirit from the womb. What does that tell you God thinks of children? He values them deeply. As the psalmist says, he knit them together in their mother's womb. He knows every fiber of their being. It's a very rich uh, appreciation for children. And then the angel goes on to basically say that, that John is going to fulfill the prophecy in Malachi 3.1 and Malachi 4.5 and 6. And if you remember, Malachi is the last book in the Old Testament as far as the way we organize it, the way the Jews organize it, Second Chronicles is the last book, and there's a reason for that. They wanted the story to end on an up note. <laughs> Malachi ends on a downbeat because there's going to be prophetic silence, which did in fact happen for almost 400 years. John will be the first prophet to speak in almost 420 or so years. People of God have not heard from the one that they longed to hear from. Now he's beginning to speak. And this prophecy is being fulfilled. In Malachi it says that one like Elijah will come to turn the hearts of the fathers back to the children lest God would destroy the entire land. Again, a rich theology and respect for children and parent relationships. So the angel is frustrated with Zechariah, but can you blame Zechariah? Right? Let's not be too hard on him. He's an old man. You know how biology works, right? We, we know the science of this. And he, like Abram, doubted. 
And Gabriel calls for him to be silent. Now, there's also a reason I think that this happens is because the thing that Zechariah was supposed to do when he came out from the Holy of Holies was pronounce the benediction. What is a benediction? It's a blessing announced over the people. Should a man who doubts the promises of God be able to pronounce a benediction? And was it time to give the benediction? No, John had not been born and God had not re-spoken to the people. And so this was also parabolic in teaching the people and showing the people the blessing was yet to come. So Zechariah was not only struck mute, but if you look later on in in uh, verse 62, he's actually, they're having to make signs to him so he can't hear either. The two great senses are taken away from him. So the, the punishment does in fact fit the crime, but it's not eternal. Notice he says, you will still have joy. And when I open your mouth and I open your ears, it will be to hear the cries of that newborn babe, John. The promise that has come to you, that has come not just for you, but for the world. And so Zechariah is able to continue. He's able to continue though he has made a mistake Though there are consequences for his mistake, he will still yet be able to enjoy the fruit of what the Lord is doing in and among his people. Notice also Elizabeth, she is just overjoyed. In fact, she's scared to go out. Now, that seems strange, but again, in some sense, it was her struggling with unbelief. She didn't want to go out too soon because she didn't want it to not be true and people be confused. Think about how we do this as well, how often the doctor says, now don't tell anybody until you get past the first ultrasound, or even for some, even later than that, depending on your history. And so she, while she was overjoyed, was also very afraid. And yet she recognized what the Lord was doing. Listen to what R. Kent Hughes says about this portion of the passage. He says, yet Zechariah disbelieved. This was serious Because in his doubts, he implicitly denied the power that would be so central to the gospel, namely the power of resurrection. If God could not give Zechariah's wife, Elizabeth, the power to conceive, how could he raise Jesus' body from the tomb? The priest's unbelief was unknowingly subversive to the entire gospel. Now, we've made it clear here uh, on a number of occasions, what is the antithesis to faith? Pride, not doubt. But this is an arrogant doubt. This guy's a priest. He knows Isaiah 40, which we read. He knows Malachi 3 and 4. He knows all of these things, and yet he doubts the power of the Lord to take two barren old folks and make a child come from their loin and womb. Who is he to be able to speak to the people if that is going to be his arrogance? See, doubt oftentimes is done so in humility. There's times that we in great humility say, God, I trust you, but I don't know how this is going to play out. I don't know how this is going to work out, but I'm going to hang on, as Habakkuk said in chapter 2, I'm going to keep my watch to see how you're going to answer, which is where all that comes from. And so, I ask you the question. What promises of God or aspects of the gospel do you struggle to believe? We all do, by the way. What truths, what promises 
Are there ways in which maybe you're twisting them to overly suit your own neurosis? Are you receiving them as they are stated in Scripture? Are there ways in which you are thinking God a cosmic candy machine? Maybe you think God owes you something. And yet the gospel says he owes you nothing. And yet he will lavish his riches upon all of his children. That's a story worth telling. That is a story worth sharing, and especially as it plays out in our own individual lives. As it is written, not only in our lives, but the lives of our children and our families. I wish that I had a generational story to tell, but I'm one of the first in my family to be a believer. I certainly don't believe I will be the last and hope that there will be generations who though they probably won't know my name, most of you couldn't name your great granddaddies unless you've really tried to keep up, but hopefully there will be a legacy that leads all the way back to the name that's most important and that's Christ alone. So what do we learn from Luke's story of Elizabeth and Zechariah? One, the gospel of Jesus Christ is a story worth sharing. Two, God uses our brokenness to display his glory. Three, all things are possible with God. All things. The more I go and the more I see, the more I believe that to be true. Even the stuff I can't answer, and there's much that I cannot answer. Even the stuff I can't account for, even in my own story. The inexplicable things. Such as my Uncle Randy, the one actual Christian or family who died of Lou Gehrig's disease, and I was there the day that they made the decision to let him die. I'll never forget that moment. And I have questions. I don't know if there'll be a Q&A time in heaven. That'll be one of my biggest. Help me understand that. And I don't know that I'm going to get to ask that question because there's a bit of arrogance and even demanding that I be told that. And it also is to deny the good that came from all that came before that day on which Randy died. And I don't want to do that. And so even that part of the story is worth telling, even though it's not yet wrapped up and neat. And so each of us, each of us has the opportunity to share something of great value with others. And most importantly, give them something tangible. Live it out. This is part of the problem is that we ourselves are so divorced from the actual living it out. There seems to be a dichotomy between the sacred and the secular for us, and that ought not be true. No, there's only the sacred. It's all sacred. It's just whether or not it's, it's uh, inane or whether or not it glorifies. So as we approach the Lord's table, the thing that is tangible that he left us so that we would not forget the story, that we would not forget one of the best parts of the story and the even better part of the story that is yet to come. We have something tangible in the broken bread and the poured out cup that we can hold in our hands and that seems so meager, but that's the gospel, isn't it? That God would come as a, as, as a, a babe to a woman who gets pregnant some miraculous way out of wedlock, try to explain that one to your first century friends. 
that, that comes and is born in a manger, that there is very little fanfare. And even Isaiah 53 tells us he will not be anyone that we would even look upon. We wouldn't even be able to recognize him except for his works. And yet he is brutally crucified and killed in an attempt to completely derail God's glory in this world. And what it actually does is in that broken body, it, it pours forth God's glory in a way that nothing else could. Hence, when Jesus says, if there be any other way, then God in essence says, no. No. 